Helen, did you know when you entered the Eater Upsell Studios to talk to me today that actually it is Donut Day? It's National Donut Day. Which nation? Uh, that's a really good question. I guess America. Oh, America. Every day is National Donut Day in America. Welcome to the Eater Upsell. My name is Greg Morabito. I'm Helen Rosner. And today we're going to be talking to one of the legends of New Orleans cuisine, Mr. John Besh. But before we do that, Helen, there's something I wanted to talk with you about. <laughs> that sounds like you're going to break up with me. <laughs> I always feel like you should just celebrate food every day. I know that sounds so silly, but why do you, do you need to celebrate one specific food on one specific day because it's written on some arcane calendar that nobody has access to that means nothing it's very fascist and then pr people and food groups food companies they're just looking for ways to promote their products so they find this weird calendar that was written in the 70s or 60s or something and then they realize that this day you know that Lyndon Johnson once signed a piece of paper that said let's celebrate tomatoes on this day because it's to support the tomato farmers, yeah. I think that, that that's the, like the actual origins. Like these congressional like acts of you know, and I think that's true. Like the president and Congress will sometimes be like, you know, we declare today like Greg Morabito Day because he has performed great service to oh, the podcasting really? community. Oh, really? What day is that? Tomorrow. I shouldn't <sighs> have told you. We have a party planned. Oh yes. But like, yeah, I mean, and I think I think actually that's true too. Like you and I and a lot of other people who kind of do what we do for a living uniquely loathe food days because 85% of our email inboxes are PR people who are just trying to grab onto whatever they can to sell their product like you were saying and so if they're like oh yeah no it's totally like you know national strawberry margarita day and I work for a tequila company I'm just going to spam the hell out of you with like reminders that if you're planning to do coverage for national strawberry margarita day you're going to want to mention like my brand and and that's exhausting. Like, I think that we are so much more aware of these fake food holidays than most other people in the universe because we are bombarded with reminders that they exist. That is so true. I never really thought about the fact that unless you're in the world of writing about food and covering it, maybe you're not bothered by the fact that somebody tells you that it's National Donut Day. You get, like, psyched about it. And then maybe you think, yeah, I should have a donut today. Well, Why not? It's not like there's, like, an... Uh, like, you know, the emergency alert network makes everyone's iPhones vibrate at once and be like, oh, <laughs> alert, alert, it's National Black and White Cookie Day. My God, that would be horrid. It would be the worst. It's just funny, though, because I just don't, like, there's no reason to celebrate any of these foods on any days. Like, you know, holidays are unusual things in general, but like Thanksgiving, you know that you're celebrating some weird chapter of our American history. Mm -hmm. And it's also the celebration of fall. Yeah. The harvest. Uh, you know, the harvest. Christmas is, yes, it has a, you know, Christian and, you know, But there's also like meaning. the pagan origins and it's, it's like the, the winter, depths of yeah, winter. Yeah, the winter thing. Having lights feels nice. And like, no, I mean, I think, you know, there is, and I'm, I, I've, I seem to remember that there is online a calendar and it's like the official calendar of theme days. And some guy, like decades ago, maybe decided that he was going to be the keeper of these things. And, um. And this is sort of like this self-appointed kingdom that he rules. And people submit things to him for consideration. And they'll be like, oh, you know, like Thursday, April 14th is like 
national tasseled corn day or like whatever crazy shit and he decides what makes it onto the official calendar and this feels like the greatest fake job in the world to me right yeah like you literally are the person who says like no no your super fake idea that's just good enough to vaguely be a little bit more real yeah you know, as you were just saying that, I had just had an idea for maybe an alternative food calendar that would maybe benefit everyone. It's like, you know how that there are some dishes you only eat on certain holidays, you know? Yeah. What if we broke down the entire year into like six hour chunks and you were only supposed to eat certain foods during those time periods. And you can't eat anything else. Nothing else. So that everybody was really on the same page. I love that. So like from 8 a.m. to noon tomorrow, you can eat nothing but like wedge salads. Or chimichangas. Well, that's from noon to four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then from four to eight, it's like chocolate cake. And, and from eight to midnight, it's like popcorn with sea salt and black pepper. Yeah. And on January 1st at 12.01 a.m., the government just emails everyone the menu for that year. It just eliminates so much stress. And it might get you to try some things you've never had before. It would kind of pull the bottoms out of every single food magazine, television show, cookbook, and maybe us. Oh, yeah. We would probably be out of a job then, huh? It's a really good idea, but I think maybe we shouldn't. It would be easier for it. us to plan coverage, <laughs> though, because we would just have this calendar. We could write the entire year, like the first week of January, and then just go on vacation. Oh, that and is... this whole underground community of lawbreakers would rise up. Yeah. Like, who were like, I want to eat anything I want to at any time. And like, it would be like this amazing, like, black hat rebellion. I love this. Oh, I want to read this comic book slash see this movie. Certain states could like secede from the, you know, <laughs> from the, the calendar. Food calendar. <laughs> be like, come to Oklahoma where you can eat fried chicken, whatever you want. You know what this really is? This is a dystopian YA trilogy. Oh, yeah. There's like a brave hero and she's 14 and one day she's like, I want to eat chicken whenever I want to eat chicken. And like she rallies the entire world behind him and we overthrow the... Is this the plot of Anthony Bourdain's comic book? Oh, that would be great. I think it actually might be. I think that this protagonist, the the young, you know, girl, it has is the girl. only one that questions the calendar right and maybe she finds some book in the woods and she realizes that in old earth yeah people were free she finds like gail green's insatiable or something and she and thinks she everybody like, has to have sex with elvis and then like eat <laughs> yeah. a pizza yeah and she's like oh people can uh eat whenever they want and sleep with whoever they want I love this. This is amazing. Greg, I, I would consume this story in literally any medium you wanted to feed it to me in. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to get on the horn with Hollywood. Let's make this happen. We're going to send him a treatment and then start to watch those dollars roll in. Love it. So right now we're joined here in the Eater Studios by John Besh, one of the legends of New Orleans cuisine. Yeah, uh, John Besh owns nine restaurants in New Orleans, or is it 10 now? Oh my a... gosh, it's too many. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of restaurants. You need it's at absurd. At least two hands to count them. Um, and you're also the author of three cookbooks with another one coming out soon. That's right. Number four is on its way in September. Chef, in a lot of ways, you're, you're sort of the, the face of New Orleans cuisine for the rest of America right now, right? I've never thought of it that way, but, you know, I'm thrilled to death to be a caretaker of this great tradition of uh, New Orleans cooking. Um, it's been passed down to me by a number of great chefs, you know, that came before me. And so I feel like being from New Orleans, 
being a chef there is more of being a steward of this and kind of like leaving it in better shape than when you found it. And so I look at this like, you know, it's much bigger than the trend, much bigger than a chef. It's much bigger than, you know, some sort of celebrity that we attach to it. And that I'm just thrilled to death and have to pinch myself every day just because <laughs> I get to live where I live. I get to cook what I cook and I get to be a part of something bigger than myself. Something I've always been, I really want to hear your thoughts on. I don't know necessarily that that food travels very well to New York City. I have not had very good New Orleans food in <laughs> no. New York. And you really shouldn't. No, I think that's the beauty of regionalism. And what I just gave a TED talk on this whole subject of connectivity and how it relates to the sustainability of one's culture. And if we're not careful, you know, this over homogenization of American pop culture has already really rid ourselves of most of the urban cuisines left in America. Like we are the last handouts, you know, standouts rather of having a truly authentic urban cuisine that has stood the test of time. And this is because we're politically isolated from the rest of the country or from the rest of the South for that matter. Well, New Orleans is kind of its geographically, own country. Geographically, yeah, geographically isolated. You have to, you know, it's not like easy to get to. Those exist in the proper proportions that has really allowed New Orleans to thrive independent of its neighbors. What I love is that it doesn't travel well. To get it, you have to go there. You have to really experience it. And also, you, you just get off the plane in New Orleans and you feel like you're in the foreign country without needing a passport. New York State driver's license is going to suffice. It'll get you in. You know, I'm in a whole different country. I can let my hair down and just be myself. And even us locals feel that way. And that's what I love about it. But it doesn't travel. And I've thought about it and I've had offers come to New York and it would be a flop. It would be a flop because... I wouldn't have access to the same ingredients. And though you can get great ingredients here, but you go there for the buster crabs, you know, the soft shell crabs and the and those big plump gulf oysters that you just want to cook. They're great. I love I grew up eating them on the half shell. I still do that. But with lots of spice and, you know, the cocktail sauce and a cold beer and a saltine cracker. So it's that whole like it's just a whole different animal. And I don't know if it translates well other places where they don't have the andouille sausage or, or this or that, that, you know, that we have in our, in our backyard. Well, I, I grew up in Chicago where there actually is mm -hmm. a really phenomenal New Orleans style restaurant, Heaven on 7. Absolutely. It's terrific. Big Jimmy's a good friend of mine. He's amazing. And, and I, I had eaten it at the original Heaven on 7, the like one that's like tucked upstairs in this random office building um, for years before I ever made it to New Orleans and ate New Orleans food. And, and certainly eating, in the city is different than eating in Chicago, but it's still, you know, Jimmy captured it. He Captures got, he the soul. And he soul. gets it. He Jimmy's one that's connected with the people of New Orleans. And so he gets it. And I think there's a story there and the story is that you really need to get to know the soul of the food if you're going to replicate it well. And even, you know, for that matter, we can all cook, try to cook Italian all day long, but unless you understand how the Italian grandmother cooks at home, then you'll never really grasp it unless you're, you know, the same goes for just about any great cuisine. And so, uh, Jimmy, when it comes to New Orleans, I mean, it's not all about eating at the fancy restaurants. He's, he's in there in the dives. He's eating at the mom and pop little po'boy shops and he's in there eating Yakamine in the bad neighborhoods. And you're like, he's getting to know what this cuisine is really all about. And I think in my culture, you know, food is that common thread that brings us all together. Uh, rich, poor, black, white, red, yellow, 
we all love our gumbo. We all love the etouffees and we all eat the same food. And so the, whatever problems we have, food is normally the one thing that kind of brings us all together at the table. It's like a real commonality. Totally. Yeah. So I actually lived in New Orleans. I was a Tulane University student for four years. Uh, oh, we're like brothers then. I, uh, right? Cousins <laughs> anyway. Um, but I actually graduated. So uh, I graduated in 2004. And you left? They let you leave? I know. It was like the biggest mistake I ever made was leaving that city. <laughs> but um, you were coming up right when I was there, but I wasn't totally aware of, you know, Restaurant August and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But I'm just really curious. It seems like the New Orleans of today, I haven't been back, sadly, since it's before Katrina. Before Katrina, but the food scene, the restaurant scene. Oh, it's on fire seems right now. Totally different and had to have evolved in this interesting way since, let's say, when you started in what, 2001? You know, it opened August in 2001, um, the week of September 11th, actually. It's scary um, how fast time flies. And now, you know, look back and it's like, wow, what happened? But, um, you know, I'm from there. I grew up in Slidell right down the same road from where I started, you know, just like, and it's awesome to see because for so long, like for, for me to be a cook, I, I thought I'd have to work for one of the great restaurant families of New Orleans. And I would always be just, you know, I was, you know, I was happy. I was hoping that I'd get to be one of those, you know, the great chefs, one of these great restaurants. Like work for the Brennans or something yeah. like that. And you know, people like Emeril Lagasse kind of and, and Susan Spicer rewrote the rules. I know now chefs get to have a role in the restaurant itself. And that whole generation came in and just changed everything, which really allowed me to, um, to, to do what I've done. And I was able to buy out, you know, I opened up in 2004, I bought my partners out in 2005. I nearly lost it all, or I thought I would have lost it all with the hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now today, you know, we had 120 employees then, and now we have, about 840 employees. Wow. Which it's is like beautiful. But it also made me realize like the importance of people and connecting, investing in people. And so I grew because my dream team of chefs wanted to grow. And those line cooks are now my partners in all the restaurants. We just opened up uh, Alan Shaya's namesake restaurant, Shaya. He's an Israeli born fella, just like a little brother of mine. Lived in my Land Rover Defender with his two cats and, and myself and a dog for about two weeks after the storm as we were working, trying to get reopened. And now he's my partner in Dominica, my partner in Pizza Dominica, my partner in, in Chaya, you know, bringing Israeli street food to uh, New Orleans. Who would have ever thought that would happen? But it's, you know, and it's great. And I think like what Katrina did, and from the time that you left New Orleans, what's happened is that we've written our own rules. The, the status quo wasn't going to work any longer. And so here's a new generation of people that are, we live there because we want to make a difference. You're not there because you're transferred or you have to live there. It's a pain in the ass to live there. You know, there's certain things, you know, it, it's, it's hard. It's not the same, you know, as, you know it's hot. <laughs> it's, but it's also the most beautiful thing in the world to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And so I say that and I refer to that often because that culture is big and it's real. And there's something to be said for being caretakers of that. And so now you have, um, you know, I've partnered with the Roan Sanchez. We opened up Johnny Sanchez. And so Roan's down there once a month working with our chefs and like killing it, bringing 
the first time like really bringing authentic Mexican to New Orleans. And so I've had fun just downtown, this neighborhood where I have almost all of my restaurants. They, um, you know, the big companies all up and left when the, the, when the tough got going. And so that void was filled by people like myself, people like Donald Link, people like, um, you know, all these other up and coming great chefs, you know, the Philip Lopez's and, you know, a bunch of them that had worked for me over the years and now on their own separate from me doing great things. Michael Galata with MoFo and doing fun food. And we're kind of rewriting New Orleans and rewriting another chapter where we're not going to, I'm not going to turn my back on the food that I grew up with. And that's what this last cookbook that I wrote is really all about. Let's get rid of all the chefy crap in it and really get down to the essence of how did the grandmothers cook, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, you go to New Orleans, you have like, uh, who was it that wrote that horrific article in the wake of... Uh, it was Alan Richmond. Richmond. Like, when, <laughs> you know, and this is just the epitome of stupid because most of my people weren't even living in homes. Yeah. I had people when he wrote that article that were living in what had been our dry storage. Like we were putting people up and he's complaining about not having a certain vintage of wine that we had printed on the dadgum menu and we couldn't even get, you know, so it's like. I think people it, didn't it, totally understand how devastating Katrina really was for, and it wasn't just like, you know, some homes flooded right. and some people had to move. It was, you pulled the rug out of an entire city. Out of not even the city, but 200 square miles surrounding it. Yeah. Where not even an ice machine is left at a dock for the shrimpers to use. So how are the shrimpers going to shrimp and bring the shrimp back? Everybody's like in the same boat, like, so to speak. And so it was one of these situations where through that, we found out real quick that your government, look, we were, we were just as liberal as a city as we can get. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nobody's going to take care of you. And so we found out with Hurricane Katrina that you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to write your own rules. You've got to figure this out because nobody really has the answer. And that when you start push away the dependency and start embracing the fact that, you know what, we're all in this together. And we went Creole food. We went this Creole culture to exist. You know, I think in that same article, he mentioned he had never seen a Creole before. And he interviewed Leah Chase, by the way, the queen of Creole cooking. That pointed out to me that like, we're the only ones that are going to take care of ourselves. And so we need to make sure that the school systems are fixed. We need to make sure, and even as, as a chef, like this is a, important, make sure that public transportation's done the right way. Make sure that public housing is, um, it, 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 you know, that we rethink all of these different things because it affects all of us. And that's where connectivity really comes into play. I love the fact that we started a foundation just after the storm because I look around my the ranks and I'm bringing people in from all around the country. And I love white boys from the suburbs, but I'm bringing in white boys from suburbs all over this country and, <laughs> and oftentimes suburbs from other freaking countries to cook Creole food. And there's something wrong with that. And the problem is, is that it really comes down to then education and who can, you know, how many black kids in the projects in New Orleans can afford to come to the CIA and pay $50,000 a year, whatever it is, you know, for a great education, which you absolutely need. So we started this, we started a program with a good friend of mine, uh, Jessica Bride Mayer, who went to the French Culinary Institute. So we started this, now it's ICC, and we, we now send two students a year up here 
not only are they going to school, but they're working full time for people like Danny Meyer, Michael White, um, Marcus Samuelson, Rachel Ray's done a great job. My buddy Aron Sanchez is is there to mentor these students along the way. So you leave New Orleans in that one neighborhood that you probably have never left, and then you come to the Big Apple, and then you're getting this great education, and then you're developing these relationships with icons in the industry at the same time that you're working full-time for one of the greatest restaurant groups ever. Mm -hmm. And then you're coming back to New Orleans as an inspiration for others. And so what we're doing is now we're on our sixth class of students coming up here that are now going back home to New Orleans, making a difference. Wow. So so, did they come back with, what do they come back with? With vigor and enthusiasm. They come back with a perspective that we can do better than just that neighborhood that I came from. They come back with the idea that they need to get involved in those little outreach programs like Liberty's Kitchen or Cafe Hope or Cafe Reconcile, where they're targeting at-risk inner-city youth. And they're the, the success story. They can say, you know what, there's another world out there and you can beat this. Well, there's also, I think, something very essential to the idea of keeping food in the hands of the people who originally made it. Um, right. Or for that matter, who because you'll, all, you'll always have people that come and go. Yeah. And that we are, and, you know, New Orleans was another port city, just like New York. And so we were a port of entry. So people didn't come to us via Ellis Island. They came to us via the, the Ninth Ward Wharf. Right. And so that's where people entered in. And so we have all of these waves of immigrants that have made their way and have added their their indelible imprint or ingredient in the proverbial gumbo pod. And so I think unless we all participate in this cultural economy, then we won't sustain it. And so we need to make sure that if it's education, we fix that. If it's our food ways, we make sure we shore that up and we fix that. Make it profitable for farmers, fishers, and foragers to, you know, new generations to come in because with... Without that, without the people and without the food, what do we have? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, that's all, that's, it's powerful, critical work to be done. And it really speaks, I think, to the preservation of, not the preservation in the sense that we have to sort of freeze these cuisines in amber, like not that they can't evolve, but that, you know, what you're doing is you're taking people who've who've grown up in the milieu of Creole cooking and who who have New Orleans in their blood, who aren't these like white suburban dudes coming over from LA and saying, oh man, I really love New Orleans because I saw some episode of a TV show. But it's actually the people whose whose parents and grandparents and great grandparents have been making this food and they get to have ownership of that yeah, culinary identity. And that it's our job to make sure that the opportunity is there and that I still want the white dudes coming in from LA who connect because we need them too. Yeah. But we need to make sure that we don't leave anybody behind. Oh, it sounds so damn political, but like to make sure that everybody at least has the the apparatus to achieve it if they want it. Absolutely. You know, being a chef isn't for everybody. You know that it's grunt work. It's blue collar work. It's rough. And unless it's like part of your soul, then this isn't for you because yeah, we're working when other people are having fun. But I noticed that there are tenacious, smart, hardworking people out there of that inner city community that just never had a leg up, uh, educationally speaking. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want to make available to them. 
So you've made some really interesting moves in the past few years with the restaurants you've opened. And I'd say that you know, they all seem very creative and different from each other and interesting concepts. Really expanding uh, the notion of what New Orleans food is. Yeah. Well, I wanted also I create things that I crave, too. And mm-hmm. that um, we have the whole Creole thing. We've done that. We have, and I, I love what Luke is doing. I love that Bourne pays homage to the Isleños, the Canary Islanders. And, you know, the, the Spanish via the Canary Islanders probably had more of an impact than probably any one group mm-hmm. uh, from one country ever on our city and our culture and on the way that we cook. But it's very seldom talked about. Uh, and so I, I love that aspect, but you know what? Who doesn't love a great taco? <laughs> like as an artist, you crave another creative outlet as well. And I want to create food that other people might crave also. So do you know, so when you're building one of these these new restaurants, do you think, all right, we want to take a risk here. Or are you thinking we want to give the people what they want? Or how do you put together like the food idea? I generally, like what do I crave? Like if I'm really putting my heart and soul in it, mm-hmm. unless a dish tastes great to me, then I, I'm not going to serve it to you. And, and so likewise, I want to create a restaurant that feels really good to me, that it's settling a need in me creatively. And then I, I have to trust that you're going to enjoy it. And so it really comes down to um, the personalities of the people behind it. I, I'm investing, like I say, in my the dream team that I had, you know, five, 10, you know, in some cases, 15 years ago of people that have been with me through thick and thin. Now, like I can help them. I can give them the marketing support, the financial support. I can give them the culinary support, the, the administrative support, the front of house support and kind of help them in a way that I never was helped. And that I had to figure this stuff out on my own. And, and so now, if they want to partner with me, then I can make life a lot easier for them to realize their creative dream and passion. And so that's why I've kind of done what I've done and where I've done it. And the truth is, we had all these opportunities outside of the city. And it took the storm to make me realize that, you know what, I don't want to, you know, this is where I want to be. This is where I'm going to die there. I'm going to, this is where you know, my happy place. And I love to travel. I love the world. I love all these other cultures. And that's why I kind of, I try to bring them to New Orleans too. And if I could find the, you know, I still have dreams of, you know, creating this great Vietnamese restaurant and we have the huge, you know, a huge Vietnamese population, a lot of my friends, but you know, I just haven't found that personality that's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm Vietnamese. I want to open this great restaurant. And I just, so as I f- see these opportunities and as I see a need in the marketplace for like, um, I've been to Israel a number of times and just absolutely love the way food kind of brings people together there as it does in my, in my hometown. And Alan had the need and the desire to like, to cook the food that he grew up on and to really show us who he is through his food. Um, he'd been my Italian chef, but the truth is he's, you know, born and raised in Israel. And so he wants to bring that. I want to support that. And that's kind of how we made some of these decisions. Like with Aron Sanchez has been one of my best friends for the past, you know, 10, 15 years, 15 years. How'd you guys meet? Actually met about 20 years ago when he was working for Paul Prudhomme. Paul Prudhomme, who's one of the 
the towering yeah. titans of the history. Yeah, of New he is—he's the icon of you know Cajun cuisine, and um, he had K. Pauls for years. He is like the uh, you know the big spice companies and whatnot. And so, um, Zarella, Aron's uh, mother, got her start through Paul Prudhomme years ago. I didn't know that. And so she sent her mouthy teenage, <laughs> I guess, eighteen-year-old. Uh, son around to be straightened out by Paul. She sent him down to New Orleans to go live and work with Paul Prudhomme. And so I met him then, and then we got to be really close when we competed on Iron Chef. And so we had a number of battles together and just, it was a great time. Myself, Aron, um, Michael Simon, and uh, Chris Cosentino, just a great group of people that we've all, we all knew each other prior and we got to be best friends through the process of trying to eliminate one it's another. It's so rare to hear a chef say that reality TV was awesome. You know what? <laughs> a lot of chefs love dissing on it, but they're making pretty good livings right now because you know they've made themselves available through this media. And that media, at the time, Iron Chef was just king. And um, it's, there, was, there was a purity to Iron Chef. Two chefs walking onto a stage, not knowing what the secret ingredient was. You have your contingency plans. Like I would always know I was going to make a soup out of it, no matter what. <laughs> I was always going to stuff it to a pasta. I was going to, you know, so I always had the ravioli down with this. And so I had these formulas, but damn, once you're in there and the camera's on, that's one hour that you have to cook. And to I cook like seven courses or something. Right? Yeah. And I was, uh, and I was always going to outdo the other as far as like, I wanted to throw in an extra course or two and maybe use if, if I could. And Does I was, it like kick your ass? Is it really hard? And it was hard as hell. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm just a sweaty freaking mess when I walk off, um, every battle, but it was so much fun. And I love what I don't like now is like now everything's like a mock competition. And how, okay, cook with, you know, standing on one foot. Well, yeah, right. When are you going to actually do that? I mean, I like, <laughs> We you were know, actually going to ask you to do that right after this question. Yeah, no, we're going to All right, do all right. But, but no, I agree. I think, like, Iron Chef was one of the early food shows for me, like, when I was starting to get interested in food. Like, we're talking, like, 2005, 2006 uh, Dude, I'm talking, like, even before even that earlier? with the like, Japanese Iron oh, Chef. God, no. I mean, that was the yeah. shit. But it's real. That's the thing. It's like, it, like you were saying, it's you're actually cooking real food. I remember when my buddy Ron Siegel went and battled. He was the first like American to go and battle an Iron Chef in <laughs> Japan and like killed him, oh stomped God. him. And um, it was just amazing just to see. I just love the artistry. I'd right. love to cook. And, you know, is that why I cook now? And does it trivial? Not to destroy the opposition. <laughs> I want to destroy you. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Truth be told, I try to make people happy, not destroy somebody through food. But um, basic hospitality. Now we do have, we do have. On that same note, if Aron Sanchez or Michael Simon, when they come to one of the restaurants, I will say, kill them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that means, or, or better yet, it's kill them and comp them. And so that means I'm going to send you one of freaking everything on the menu, and then you are just going to hate me afterwards and love me in between. I've heard a chef refer to this as, um, excuse my French, the hate fuck tasting menu. <laughs> <laughs> and so now when we go to places that we know our friends are, you know, they, they own, it's like, 
shit, I hope they don't recognize me. I'm just going to sneak in and order off the menu. Like, all I want to do is order off the menu. Never works, though, right? They do, they do it to you when you come don't to ever, places. Don't right? ever go see Danny Bowen at uh, Mission Chinese when he's there, or you're screwed. I'll just drown you. That's right. David Chang, same thing. He'll torture your ass. Wow. So, and, and it seems like it's an act of love, but it's really like... Kill him. So did you find, uh, did you, were you aware of a different kind of customer coming to your restaurants after the TV stuff or was it just kind of a gradual, you know, steady thing? A whole lot more of them. I mean, a lot of customers start to come and it's, you know, you, I'm not going to say that the celebrityism isn't nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you're only human. Hypocrite. The truth is, is that at a time when we needed customers the most, I got a little bit of press through doing that sort of stuff. And those people came to New Orleans. They just didn't eat in my restaurants. They ate in, you know, mom and pop little po' boy joints. They ate at Willie Mae's Scotch House. They would eat at my competitors. And it's all good. And so I think the attention, and people, when, when I was coming up, people would always diss Emerald. And they were dissing Emerald because, you know, the, you know he's a TV chef. You know what? Because of him, because of the Wolfgang Pucks, we get to we get to live in nice houses now, and we you know we get to enjoy a pretty nice life, and and there's something to be said for that. And those people that went before us that are often you know villainized for doing what they do, there's a lot of immaturity there because the truth is we all benefit from an elevation of this craft to a profession. There's something. On that, that you had mentioned in the in one of your cookbooks, I think it was in my what was my family table, which you wrote many years ago. So maybe your thoughts on this have evolved. But I've I've I remember reading that in in the intro to this cookbook and really sticking on it because where I was in my career as a food writer was a place where I was grappling with sort of similar questions. And I remember you you talking about how um, sort of the fetishization of the chef. And the fetishization of like the restaurant kitchen was keeping people out of their home kitchens. That you have this- well, I think that now chefs have become the standard bearers for culture and for feeding and you know, the kind of pop culture thing, you know. And and I'm not saying there are some drawbacks to that. People, it's not because of the chefs that people don't cook at home. It's because of the you know we've all bought into this BS vision of you know whatever the the American dream is now where feeding yourself at home at a table, breaking bread, especially if you have children. And that's where this book was really coming in. You know, now I'm just not the chef trying to win awards and have you know, my face plastered on magazine covers, but now I'm a dad. Mm-hmm. And at that point it was like, I have got to feed those closest to me or if not, I failed as a human being. And if I don't at least attempt to make um, to make the effort of starting with just one day a week, finding the time to have that Sunday supper, then what am I really passing on to them? And we're all in such a hurry these days, and we're running and you know doing this and doing that. And even though we have more technology and we have so much at the palm of our hand, literally speaking, that too often we're just, this is a distraction and it's distracting us from actually getting into the kitchen and cooking. My family table was all about trying to bring people back to the table. 
So part of that is a book that you're working on that's coming out this fall. It sounds like part of that is, you know, you saying, you know, you don't have to be this crazy restaurant chef. You don't have to do a million things. Right. There is an evolution. You see these gray hairs? I've earned them. (laughs) And so when I cook, I don't want to, like it used to be when I was a hot chef in my mind, like I wanted to be blah, 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 James Beard Award winning chef. When I cooked at home, I cooked and I just soiled every pot and pan that I had. I made these huge meals and it was all about me. Mm -hmm. Now when I cook, I want to use one pot, maybe two. And I want it to be something that's soulful and delicious and all about passing something on to whoever I'm feeding. And so I don't want to clean up after me and my wife's not going to. And and so I don't have a team of people prepping and cleaning behind me when I'm at home. And so when I'm cooking at home is a whole different sensibility. Um, I grew up with, you know, my grandmother maybe had salt, pepper, and a touch of cayenne pepper in her in her pantry. She didn't have all these spice blends and no, you don't freaking need them. Yeah. Just, you know, bay leaf here, dash of dried thyme there and you're, you're going to be good. And I wanted to bring that soulfulness back to cooking the food I grew up on. And, um, and it's, again, it, it's another something trying to entice people to come into the kitchen. My fancy books had all been like these $50 somethings that most people probably sat on their coffee table. This book that I'm that I've just done is is going to be twenty dollars and you know a, a paperback designed to get dirty. Right. I, I hope that it's splattered and the pages are then folded and noted and all that good stuff. I think you've you've hit on a really interesting point of tension in the food world. Like in in the last couple of years, I feel like there's been. I want to say broification, but that that sounds like a judgy word. A lot of media it sounds very sexist the way you're oh, saying it. Well, we wouldn't want that. But um, no, I think there's been there's been an increased focus in the media on men who cook at home, and sort of bringing attention to the fact that like it's not just a, a feminine thing to be domestic to nurture and nourish your family. And New Orleans has never been a feminine thing. It's always been like. Men cook their things and the women cook their things. And, and I think that throughout middle America, you know, that was taboo. Oh, yeah. You know, 30, 40 years ago, like, man does not cook unless, there's, in the, unless it's a grill <laughs> yeah. in the backyard and a beer right next to it. And, yeah, so I see that changing a lot, and I think it's a good thing. It's an evolution of who we are, and we're, as a country, I think a lot more we've matured to the point all of us need to share in the cooking and the breaking of the bread. Yeah, that's the awesome. thing that brings us all together. So um, one of my last questions for you is, uh, you know... You're kicking me off? No, we'd love to have you all day. This all depends on how well you answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it depends on this question. So, it looks like he's saying, finish this sucker fast. <laughs> you opened a bunch of restaurants. You've written a bunch of cookbooks. You have a charity. You're, you've done TV. What is next on your career list? Are you be done? Wanna, are you done? Is there any, or are you ever like, no. I want to go put a, and... Put a fork in them. You know, I want to continue to... This charity is so important to me. We just... Years ago, we started partnering with farmers and, uh, well, just food producers, but I love to really focus in on farmers in particular. We created a um, microloan program called Milk Money. And where a lot of the farmers that we work with have no access to capital, You're giving them access to capital at virtually no interest and uh, partnering them with uh, MBA students who can then give them the business acumen needed 
the marketing help, the sales support, the distribution support to make their farming, foraging, or fishing business work for them in today's economy. And so it's really important for me to focus in on milk money part of our um, foundation and as well as the chef's move part. And that's targeting minority kids from inner city New Orleans. And, and that's the program that sends them up to New York to go yeah, to college. And so I've got, I mean, I have my work cut out for me. And so I think like to grow these things and to continue to teach and inspire. This year, I turned down a really big television deal because I wanted to be closer to home to really focus on this. Was that a tough decision? And in a way, I think like, man, I've really screwed up because I've turned down some big doozy deals, but like I couldn't be a dad and I couldn't be a chef and I can't be a philanthropist if I'm not there to actually get involved. And so this has been one of the best years of my life because I'm actually able to roll up my sleeves and focus on the things that are most important to me. Wow. That's really inspiring. Very inspiring. <laughs> I know. I feel like I should. No, but you know, yeah. and we have a great team around us. And so it's, a, it's like the snowball that's just gathering force and, and it's beautiful when you, when you, then inspire you and you inspire them and everybody's kind of spurring each other on to do something great. And then you see like the changes that are happening in New Orleans yeah. right now, which are freaking incredible. And that we have more restaurants now than we ever thought of having even before the storm. And so like we're in such a better place. It's like, okay, so we, you see the momentum and you see the ground that we've gained. And I start thinking like, yes, we can actually change this. We're making mm -hmm. headway. Yeah. Let's not take our eye off the ball. Well, restaurants are a great crucible for that because they do touch so many elements of our lives. I mean, there's the fundamental emotional core where it's, the, to use your word, connectivity. And, and it's a place where people come together and you, sh you break bread and you share the table. But what happens in a restaurant has like tentacles, it spreads out, it affects the farms, it affects real estate, it affects residential stuff, it affects education. Exactly. It's it's such a, a sort of central, what's the word? It's a brain and then the whole sort of neural system. Of no, I love what you're saying about that. the tentacles and I totally get it because it's not just what happens right then. It's just not what you're celebrating even at the table. It's not like here's three bucks, here's a taco. It's like but such when a it's, bigger But when it's done responsibly, there's there can be such a great impact. And that's why, you know, I talk about the over homogenization of society because I want to be careful that, you know, that I want us to continue to grow and continue to evolve without all the outside influences of, you know, the big box brands and national chains and this and that, that uh, will inevitably, you know, be the, you know, the doom of, of these cultures like this. But also the nationalization of trends. I mean, like, does every single city need a kimchi taco? You know, does every single city need the kale salad? I mean, the kimchi taco and the, and the kale salad are delicious, but are they New Orleans? Are they Charleston? Are they Chicago? Like, this sense of place right, is right. so key. No, and I think that you brought up, a, that's a great point because you want to travel, you want to go to other places and have a taste of that toa, of that location of that people of that culture. Yeah. I mean, restaurants describe the place they are. Definitely. Well, Mr. John Bash, want to thank you so much for coming by the Eater Upsell. You're an inspiration to at least Helen and I. We really like your food. <laughs> we really like your food. We'll enjoy that shrimp remoulade in front yeah, of you. Yeah, oh, yeah, we have these amazing jars of Don't shrimp Don't share remoulade. it with anybody unless you love them.
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sharing this with anyone. This is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Thanks, John. That was awesome. You are so good. Time flies. Yeah, man. Crap. On the next episode of The Eater Upsell, former pastry chef at Chez Panisse, David Leibovitz, blogging god and author of like more cookbooks than I can count. Eater wouldn't exist maybe without... Basically, the entire internet would not exist without him. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to itunes.com slash eateropsell. And as always, you can visit eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our intern is Tanya Maitai. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening. <laughs>